You can either work in the business or you can work on the business. They have the knowledge and the skill to be successful. Yesterday is gone and tomorrow has yet to come. Dive all in on the next chapter of your life. Welcome to The Boutique with Collective 54, a podcast for founders and leaders of boutique professional services firms. For those that don't know us, Collective 54 is the first mastermind community to help you grow, scale, and exit your firm bigger and faster. My name is Greg Alexander. I'm the founder, and I'll be your host today. And on this episode, we have the privilege of talking to Matt Rosen and the leader of a company called Aleda, which he'll introduce in a moment. And we're going to talk about building a quality management team and how he's done that at his firm and hopefully learn a few things along the way. So, Matt, it's good to see you. Would you introduce yourself to the audience, please? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Greg. So, my name is Matt Rosen. I'm the founder and CEO of Aleda. Aleda is a tech consulting firm based in Dallas with offices in Phoenix, Boise, and Provo. And what we do is we help companies with their most complex technology initiatives from a strategy, architecture, development, and data standpoint. Okay, awesome. And, Matt, when did you found the firm? So, Greg, I founded the firm back in 2016. It was just myself and a developer, and now we're over 220 people and growing quickly. Yeah, it's an incredible story. It really is. Congratulations on all that. Thank so, you. So, let me set up the, the topic because I, and I asked you that question about when you founded it and where you are today because you've scaled so fast. And I think one of the reasons why you've done that is because you've been able to build a quality management team, and I've, and I've had the privilege of meeting a few of them. And it's a, it's a big subject because sometimes – founders that are growing like that, um, they hit a bottleneck eventually. And that is the kind of the, the hero with a group of helpers doesn't work. You know, there's just too much work for one person and you got to hire senior people um, or develop senior people. You have to give them enough autonomy to make the contributions that, that they need to make, um, empower them to be successful. And I think you've done a really good job with that. So I'd like to start with an opening question, which is at a high level, um, explain to the audience kind of the organizational structure, your leadership team that reports to you um, by role, maybe. I don't know if you need to mention names, but by role. And tell me how you came to that conclusion and why you built it the way you built it. Yeah. So where we're at today is I really have three direct reports. I have a chief strategy officer and she owns sales marketing, our go-to-market offerings, as well as our partnerships. I have a, a chief technology officer, and he's really looking forward to the you know, technology direction, new trends that we should be jumping on. He's also my personal help desk when I run into issues <laughs> with that. <laughs> we all need one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and then I've got a chief operating officer. So the office leadership reports into him. So I have leaders you know, for four different groups within the company. There's Dallas, Phoenix, virtual and uh, Boise. And then he's got all our back office functions from you know recruiting to HR uh, to finance. And so really everything falls to the three of them. And underneath them, they've got leadership structures and sales and marketing, especially at a delivery level. There's you know four group leaders that almost all the consulting resources roll into. And then we've got practice leads. So for strategy, for architecture, for product and design, for technology solutions and for data, We've got uh, vice presidents that head up each of those service lines, if you will, and people are really matrixed across the organization into you know those office leaders as well as the practice leaders. What I find remarkable about your story is you've been around five or six years, you've grown like crazy, and yet you personally only have three direct reports. 
Now, I know underneath those three, they have their teams, but that's that's pretty remarkable. Sometimes I see guys and gals like you with eight to ten, and they're they're living almost miserable lives because there's not enough hours in the day. So how did you get it so tight to only three? Well, you have to have really good leaders. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. You've got to have people that you can set goals for. You know, I'm not a micromanager. I'm not even really a macromanager. I set high-level goals, and I get the heck out of the way. I hire bright people. You know, I you know do have one-on-ones with the three of them, and I probably talk to the layer below them. You know, at least every other week. But you know, we've got a real structured way in which we do. You know, a sales meeting every Monday. We do an operations meeting every Tuesday. I'm always in on those, or people are sending me a synopsis of them. So that gives me just enough information, really, to run the firm. And it took a while to really trust folks and hand things off, especially in the sales arena. You know, that was based on one of the recommendations you made when I was early on in the collective was you've got to stop being the hero sales guy. And that was really hard for me to let go. But I finally have found, you know, a leader who came from a large firm and she brought a lot of process with her and is now leading the sales team and is a very effective seller herself. Um, But a lot of it comes down to finding people that are great at doing the things that you don't or can't do well, empowering them to do their job. And staying out of their way unless they're just not meeting their goals. And know that people aren't going to do things the way you do them. Right. And that's okay. Yep. Okay, so awesome story. Um, I'm really proud of you for what you did on the sales side. And it was hard for you to let go because you enjoyed it. <laughs> I remember I talking. To, yeah. I still get involved. But I still get pulled in from time to time. Yeah. But I'm not actively leading sales cycles. I'm, getting, I'm spinning them up from time to time and I'm handing them off. Yeah. And, and it's tough to let go of the things that you really like to do. So that, that's a great story to hear that you're doing that. Um I know that your company is not for sale, but given your growth, I imagine the phone rings. And one of the things that uh, potential acquirers are always looking at as part of their diligence is the quality of the management team. So if someone came to you with an offer you couldn't refuse, you know, some crazy number that you'd be ridiculous if you didn't take it, do you know who your successor is and who you would hand the firm over to, or would you plan on staying after the sale? And then if you were to hand it off, does, does everybody get pulled up the org chart, so to speak, so that the thing doesn't fall apart post-sale? That's a great question. You know, we're not for sale, but if some crazy offer came along, I would foresee myself sticking around for a couple of years to, you know, make sure that there was a smooth transition integration. Ultimately, I built this firm because I didn't want to work for others. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to build a firm that was sustainable and successful with or without me. So, you know, there, there definitely is a succession plan in place that we're executing on. Um, there's definitely a couple of folks that could, with some training and tenure, probably step in, into my shoes. You know, nobody's nobody's replaceable. It just takes time for them to grow into the role. Um, and what we've got is a really good mix of people that were career consultants in a mix of people that were in industry, I had a lot of clients that were VPs of app dev or CIOs coming to work for me. So we've got this really nice group of leaders that have, you know, either consulted their whole careers or sat on the side of the desk of those that we're selling to. That adds a lot of credibility when we're working with clients. Awesome, glad to hear that. Um, sometimes when I talk to members and I suggest that they do what you've done, I hear particularly from maybe the younger firms, those that haven't reached the scale that you've reached, they say, well. If I have all these people that are going to do all this stuff, what am I going to do? <laughs> Which I tell them, hold on, you know, you'll have plenty. Of, if things go well, you'll never ask that question again. There's going to be too much to do. So now that you have put this great team in place and you've elevated yourself, what do you personally spend your time on? 
You know, I spend my time thinking about where we need to head next from a company's perspective, what, what geos we might want to go into, what offerings we might want to have. You know, I spend time you know, visiting with a lot of our larger clients and spending time with them, just understanding what's important to them. I, a lot of them are my close personal friends. Uh, you know, I spend time talking with, with leaders as they need you know, strategic advice. You know, they might call me and say, hey, we've got this situation. What do you think? And they you know, run things by me. You know, putting this great leadership team in place has allowed me to actually get out and, you know, play around of golf every now and again, which I hadn't done in about 20 years. So that's yeah. kind of nice. And, you know, I spend that, you know, folks like you or, uh, you know, clients that like to get out there as well and, you know, in, in, enjoy a, a walk ruined by golf. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's always things you can be working on, looking for ways to make the firm better, you know, taking leadership courses, um, you know, getting, doing interviews such as this. Uh, really being a thought leader in, in your space, as well as looking for how can you grow the firm, maybe through M&A. So we're you know actively talking to a couple of companies that might be accretive and be good partners for us as we grow. Yeah. So listen, is what we just heard there is that Matt spends his time on the business, not in the business. He spends a little time in the business and in the right spots, but he has a team that's doing that for him. So he's pursuing the vision, the future. And unless somebody is dedicated to that vision in the future, it never happens. You're just constantly in reaction mode. Matt is in and being proactive now, and he's leading. He's not managing. There's a difference between managing and leading. And what we're hearing from Matt today is he's leading, which is a great role model for all of us to follow. I got one more question regarding the management team and the structure in particular. I know when I went through this process that, that you have gone through, the thing that I was less willing to give up, and I clung to the most, which was a flaw. I didn't do it the right way. This was a mistake. It came to investment decisions when money was going to get spent. I held on to this money like it was my first communion money. <laughs> I was unwilling to let anybody to you know make those decisions other than me. How is that handled in your firm? How is Do you approve all expenses, or do people have authority to do these types of things? So in this, I would say over the last 12 to 18 months, we've moved to a budget. As long as people are spending what's in their budget, mm. there's not a problem with that. In fact, if anything, they put that budget in some respects to control me from spending too much on a different part. <laughs> the budget was for you. <laughs> yeah, some of that was actually for me, Greg. <laughs> stick to and hold to a budget. But we're, we're doing a good job and you know, we're performing ahead of plan as, as a result of it. So no, I, you know, again, it comes back to empowering people. I mean, the only thing I've not given up is, you know, I'm the only one that sends wires. But other yeah. than that, you know, people have corporate cards, they have budgets, they can spend on what they need. We have a controller, you know, who authorizes money to go out. Um, and so most of that I've given up and people make a lot of decisions where we where we spend that budget that's been allocated, you know, without my involvement. Yeah, interesting. That's really uh, inspiring. And the budget process, is this, it sounds like this is a relatively new thing, let's say, in the last couple of years. So how do you guys create the budget? Is it done once a year? Is it done at the beginning of the year, end of the year? How, how does all that work? Yeah, it gets done you know, as the year was wrapping up. So towards the end of 21, we set the budget for 2022. You know, we reviewed it with the, the group leaders. You know, we had them put in things that they wanted. We reviewed it with you know, sales and marketing and, the, and the, you know, the practice leads. And everyone kind of put in their wish list and we kind of whittle it down to, you know, what we thought we could spend in, in addition to where do we think we could achieve from a, a you know, revenue top line standpoint. And so we review it monthly. Uh, we do at the end of each month, kind of a financial review 
see how we're tracking. And, you know, if we are doing ahead of plan, we might spend more on certain things or make more investments in certain areas. But the big, you know, the big thing for 2022 is, you know, making sure we're focused on, on EBITDA, really building a sustainable organization and, you know, spending where we need to and not spending where we shouldn't. Yeah. That's great that you review it monthly. Is it kind of like a variance to plan type meeting? Absolutely. We go through, you know, line by line on the major categories and see where we're under, see where we're over. And, you know, we adjust as necessarily as we go into the next month. And, you know, at least for January, we're on track. We'll see how we're doing February next week. <laughs> yeah. You know, the hardest part about budgeting for me was the forecasting part of it. You know, it's it's easy to look at what's happened and you can do the variance of plan on that. But then if someone says, hey, what's going to happen in six months? It's tough because professional services can be a little lumpy and you know there's not as much forward visibility as we as we might like. Have you have you implemented any type of forecasting system that sits on top of the budget that predicts the future? And if so, how's that going so far? You know, it's really a combination of two tools. You know, we've got a CRM tool like most organizations do, and we try and put in as much as we know. We've got, you know, kind of a four-stage sales process and it's weighted. And so we've got kind of that weighted pipeline. And we're always trying to have two to three X our revenue plan and weighted pipeline. It never turns out to be that much because we tend to, you know, sandbag and be a little bit conservative. Um, but we have that weighted forecast of all the deals that are in the pipeline, what's coming as well as our forecast of what we think clients are going to do between now and the end of the calendar year. Uh, and then we invested in a professional services automation tool that allows us to see, you know, weekly how we're tracking a plan, making sure hours are up to date. It also has some modeling uh, scenarios um, where we can figure out, you know, based on the team people we have available, you know, what type of team can we put together? What's their profitability? Because for the longest time, we only understood uh, margin at a company level. We didn't understand it at a project or client level. And now we have that visibility and that visibility is allowing us to make smarter decisions. You know, you know, I think about consulting hours like bananas, they spoil it in each month. So you've really got to manage them tightly and, you know, ensure that you're watching them and leveraging them and, you know, trying not to leave, you know, anything behind. Yeah question on the PSA platform, which I'm so glad to hear that you've installed that. I'm a big advocate, and I think it really helps, particularly on those two items, project and client-level profitability and managing that inventory. What advice would you have for younger firms, smaller firms, on when it's appropriate to progress to the point where you would install a professional services automation tool? When the Excel spreadsheet starts breaking. <laughs> Which happens early, yeah. <laughs> it's probably better. My team had to push me for years, uh, and I don't mind mentioning the tool. We implemented a tool called Mavenlink, yep. and uh, you know, we were able to cut a pretty good deal with them. And they have professional services that helped us implement it. You know, the challenge is you do have to take someone senior and have them help on your end of the implementation. So, you know, it was an investment, one that I had to be pushed on for a while. It probably would have been cheaper if I had done it sooner. We probably would have actually been a bit more profitable. I probably waited a, a year or two too long. Um, but now that we have it and it's in, we are seeing returns from it. We are capturing time that we weren't previously. It's allowing us to model up skill sets and understanding where we need to be investing. You know, it probably is something we should have done two years prior. Yeah. And my team was pushing me for it, but I held off because I wasn't ready to, to to make the investment in it. But I'm glad they finally pushed me to that. Yeah, a mix of harvest and spreadsheets was no longer getting the job done at, you know, yeah. 200 plus people. Yeah, exactly. Well, listen, man, um, um, you're just, you're absolutely knocking it out of the park. I mean, every single thing you're supposed to be doing to be on the business and scaling the business is working really great and your results back it up. 
And uh, I want to, on behalf of the membership, just thank you publicly. This is a big contribution. You're a role model for many, and in, in hearing your story and how quick you've gotten to this point is uh, is an inspiration. So, so thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Greg. Appreciate okay. it. All right, and for those that are interested in learning more about this subject, building a quality management team and others like it, pick up the book. It's called The Boutique, How to Start, Scale, and Sell a Professional Services Firm. You can find it on Amazon. And for those that are listening that want to meet really bright professional services owners like Matt, consider joining our community. You can find it at collective54.com. Thanks again, Matt. Take care. Thanks. Take it easy.